Welcome to some very famous people you've never really heard of. Bite-sized biographies of the famous, the infamous, and the quirky in less than an hour. My name is Philip D. Gibbons, and there is more information about me, this podcast, and a bibliography at someveryfamouspeople.com. There are also photographs of many of the individuals and items mentioned in this podcast. At the conclusion of part two of this presentation, there will be additional suggestions concerning further information about today's subject, Leonard Cipolla and the Alaskan hero dogs, Balto and Togo. Now let's continue with our story about Leonard Cipolla. In Nome itself, conditions were worsening on a daily basis. Whatever meager supply of antitoxin that Dr. Welsh started with was long gone. With each passing day, despite a general quarantine, additional cases were identified. By Friday, January 30th, there were 27 definite diagnoses of diphtheria. Welsh was updating U.S. public health authorities on the situation, and Nome's worsening predicament was common knowledge across the country. The doctor was also getting updates on the serum sled drive, and the best estimate he received was that the precious delivery would arrive sometime on Sunday. Early that same Friday morning, the 12th driver, Charlie Evans, was waiting at the outpost at Bishop Mountain for the sled driven by George Nolner from Whiskey Creek. Except for Bill Shannon's wild, frostbitten night ride, thus far the run had been relatively uneventful. When Nolner arrived, both men went into the roadhouse with the package, the drivers all told to warm up the antitoxin at every opportunity. No one was quite sure what effect that extreme cold might have on the efficacy of the vaccine. Evans interacted with Nolner and the package for about an hour and then set out for Nulato, about 30 miles away. It was 4.30 a.m., dark and at least 60 below zero as the aurora borealis flickered above him in the night sky. Evans' father ran a trading post in Koyukuk on the way, and Charlie figured he would be able to make it there, even if he ran into serious trouble. Ten miles into his run, he did run into trouble. At the confluence of the Yukon and smaller Koyukuk rivers, water overflowed onto the trail, creating a foggy condition that made visibility difficult. In fog up to his neck, Evans would have to trust that his dogs stayed on the trail, the cold temperature and moisture was also a major problem that would eventually exhaust even the hardiest of sled dogs. His two lead dogs were also part retriever, with thinner coats that Evans could see were starting to chafe against the harness. His father was waiting for him on the trail at Koyukuk, but he yelled that he couldn't stop. His dogs would never start up again. Five miles after seeing his father and ten miles from Nulato, Evans' two lead dogs gave out completely. Their legs were blue and swollen, their skin raw from the cold and the harness. The driver put the dogs in the sled basket, strapped on the harness himself, and started pulling the sled. Evans knew that a wheel or team dog will only follow unless trained to lead, and without any lead dogs, it was up to him to set the pace. Five and a half hours after leaving Bishop Mountain, at 10 a.m., Charlie Evans made it to the roadhouse at Nulato. He brought the dogs and the serum inside, but he knew the animals were already dead. As an old man, 
When asked what he remembered the most about the serum run, he simply responded, it was real cold. From Nulato on, sled drivers had already gotten the word that they were not to wait for Sapala, but they were to keep going on the trail toward Nome. Three more drivers would successfully make the trek to Unalakleet. Victor Anagik, a full-blooded Inuit, arriving at 3.30 a.m. on Saturday, January 31st. There, Miles Ganangan was the next man up. Warned that he could encounter Sapala at any point on the trail, he set out, hoping to run into the other sled driver coming the other way before he got to the next roadhouse destination, Shaktulik. If he made it all the way there without seeing Sapala, he hoped to get an update that would direct him as to what to do next. Right outside of Shaktulik, Ganangan ran into snowdrifts created by winds that were gusting up to 50 miles an hour. Repeatedly, he had to stop and put on snowshoes and tamp down a passageway through the snowdrifts, an arduous process that took time. In five hours, he traveled only 12 miles. It was so cold that he stopped in an abandoned shack to start a fire to warm up the dogs and the serum. Sled dog drivers routinely carried matches kept in waterproof containers, bits of kindling, and other material to start such a fire, a routine procedure along the trail in this type of severe weather. The next stretch of the trail featured 1,000-foot altitudes with no cover from powerful and repetitive gusts of wind. Ganangan traversed the stretch of the run in whiteout conditions, relying on his team of eight dogs, who luckily had made this trek many times. Once Ganangan reached the summit, he was then faced with a descent that would generate speeds that easily could flip the sled, accelerate into and over the dog team itself, or take it completely off of the trail in a wrong and potentially fatal direction. The driver could only jam his rudimentary brake into the snow and ice underneath and try to maintain some semblance of control. Ganangan made it down the descent and then would have to travel along the shoreline of Norton Sound, the wind whipping off the water with a wind chill of 70 below zero. He arrived at Shaktulik at 3 p.m., both he and his dogs exhausted after 12 hours on the trail. Even with a brief rest, had Ganangan been willing, his team would not have the strength to go much further, the weather forecast predicting even worse conditions after nightfall. There was no sight or even a word about the whereabouts of Leonard Sapala. Fortunately, Mark Summers had a backup plan in case the handoff was bungled. Drivers were lined up all the way back to Nome if necessary, and the first driver involved in this contingency plan, Henry Ivanov, a driver with both Russian and Inuit ancestry, was scheduled to take the serum to the next destination, Ungalik. There was no time to figure out what happened to Sapala. There were any number of possibilities as to where he was, and there was no guarantee that he wasn't injured or unable to continue. Although this contingency continued the process, it was not ideal. Ivanov was a sea captain by trade and definitely second tier when it came to dog mushing, but he was the only available option in the area. He set off towards the next stop in the relay, Ungalik. He also would be exposed to the winds coming off of Norton Sound, but at least he could be reassured by the fact that his leg of the trail was one of the shortest of the whole run. Where was Sapala? It had taken him three days to travel 130 miles to reach Isaac's Point, the roadhouse closest to the route across Norton Bay. Early on Saturday morning, he had to decide whether to take the overland route, which would add a day, or the faster but more dangerously direct option 
over the ice. Despite warnings from Mark Summers to stay off of the bay, Sapala determined that the wind was at his back and conditions were reasonable. He made the 22-mile crossing without incident and hit the land at Ungalik, his dogs urged to reach top speed. Sapala figured that he would get to Shack Tulik, stop at the roadhouse, and decide whether to continue on to Unalakleet or stop for the day. On the outskirts of Shack Tulik, his team reacted to something ahead on the trail, but it was a few more seconds before Sapala determined that another dog sled was coming in his direction. Although he didn't know it, it was Henry Ivanov, not even a mile out of town, before his dogs started fighting one another and the driver had to stop and untangle his pack and calm them down. Ivanov tried to signal to Sapala to stop, but Leonard had no time to waste and, unaware of the change in strategy, had no idea who Ivanov was or what he was doing. As it became clear that Sapala had no intention of stopping, Ivanov began flailing his arms wildly, and as Sapala passed, he shouted at the top of his lungs. In the gusty wind and with the hood of his fur jacket pulled tightly over his ears, Sapala caught only a few words yelled directly into his face. Serum! Turn back! Sapala went a considerable distance before being able to stop Togo and turn the sled around, the animals always relentlessly wanting to move forward and never backwards. Finally, he was able to pull even with Ivanov. Henry quickly put the package in Sapala's sled, handed him the printed instructions concerning handling the serum, and explained what had happened. Initially, Sapala was happy that he did not have to go any further, but now he was faced with having to head back and make a decision as to whether he would cross over the ice of Norton Bay or stick to the coast. Not only did Sapala have to take his and his dog's safety into account, he also could not afford to lose the serum that meant life or death for much of the city of Nome. As he made his way on land back to Ungalik, he could see that conditions were rapidly deteriorating. It was getting dark. The wind was now in his face and in the face of his team, and he estimated that it was at least 30 below zero, with frequent gale-force gusts of 40 miles an hour. By the time Sapala reached Ungalik, it was completely dark, but he did not hesitate. He would take the ice route over Norton Bay. Once on the frozen water, Sapala was at the mercy of the elements and the ability of his lead dogs to find the way. As it happened before, he could wind up traveling several miles before coming to the edge of an ice floe that was now adrift in Norton Sound, on the way to open water and the Bering Sea, or simply fall through a weak spot in the ice. Togo was paired with another younger lead dog, Fritz, but it was the older, more experienced animal that was keeping his head low, completely focused on the straightest, direct, but safest route across the bay. Whether it was a sense of smell, some remarkable canine intuition, or a unique ability bestowed upon a gifted animal, at 8 p.m., Togo, his team, and Leonard Sapala, after experiencing over 20 miles in dangerously frigid and extreme conditions, came off of the bay at Isaac's Point and headed for the nearest rest stop, an igloo constructed out of ice and sod. As rudimentary as it was, it provided warmth and a kennel where the dogs could rest and consume their daily ration of dried salmon and whale blubber. They earned it traveling 86 miles in one day. After reading the written instructions, Sapala moved the serum container inside as close to the fire as possible and went to sleep himself. But the sled driver still wasn't done yet. At 2 a.m., as requested, 
he was awakened by the Inuit who owned this modest roadhouse. A severe weather front heading from the Gulf of Alaska meant that the later in the day he left, the worse conditions would be. After a brief rest, Sapala wanted to get back on the trail. He had approximately 50 more miles to get to his final destination, Golovin. There he would hand off the package to the next driver, Charlie Olson. The elderly Inuit proprietor gently suggested that Sapala avoid the time-saving trick of traveling on the ice parallel to the actual path on solid ground. In such extreme weather, the ice along the coast frequently broke off, crumbling completely and rapidly, pitching anything on top into open water. This time, Sapala, figuring that the Inuit knew what he was talking about, took a more conservative approach and a path on solid ground. As the sun came up, Sapala could see over his shoulder across Norton Bay, and the ice that had provided a shortcut the day before now completely broken apart. The front brought colder temperatures of over 40 below, and while not confronted with danger of traveling over unpredictable ice, Sapala was still faced with some of the most rugged topography along the entire route to Nome, a succession of steep ridges that culminated with a steep hill known as Little McKinley. The team was near exhaustion and requiring Sapala to occasionally stop and wipe off the ice and snow that was now collecting on the animals in layers. Up each ridge and down each treacherous slope, an eight-mile stretch that culminated at Little McKinley's summit. The dogs continued relentlessly, reaching the peak and finally rewarded with the three-mile downhill slope that took them to the roadhouse at Golovin, reaching the outpost at three o'clock in the afternoon. Leonard Sapala and his team covered 260 miles in four and a half days, carrying the antitoxin for 91 of those miles. On one of these days, he covered 84 miles, a greater distance than any other driver's single run, and this under the most extreme and dangerous conditions. In fact, the weather was deteriorating so badly that in Nome, Dr. Welsh urged Mayor Maynard to suspend the relay. Concerned that a driver might courageously but foolishly get killed, braving what was, even for this region, ferocious weather conditions. Maynard was able to reach Ed Roan, the driver slated to take the package the final 21 miles from Port Safety to Nome, and let him know that the relay was suspended just before the line suddenly went dead in winds that were now approaching a hurricane force of over 80 miles an hour. Even if the mayor was able to reach anyone in Golovin, which he wasn't, Charlie Olson was already on the trail. Conceptually, he had one of the easier assignments, only needing to get to Gunnar Kaysen in Bluff, 25 miles away. But that was before the weather turned hellish, and Olson realized that he needed to take special precautions or his dogs would never make it. He put dog blankets on all seven members of his small team, only able to take his gloves off for 30 seconds at a time before he started to lose feeling and risked frostbite. Several times, gusts of wind overturned the sled, tangling the dog harnesses and hurling Olson and the team into deep snow drifts, requiring the driver to laboriously dig his way out. Olson was 46 years old, had spent a lot of time mining in the Alaskan interior, and witnessed what he thought was Alaskan weather at its worst, but he was unfamiliar with anything like this. Despite feeling overwhelmed, he eventually made it to Bluff at about 7 p.m. after an extremely elongated trip of four and a half hours. His hand and fingers were so stiff that he couldn't even untie the serum package from his sled. 
Kaysen got him, the serum, and the dog team literally on their last legs into the warmth of the roadhouse. Immediately, he told Kaysen that he should not under any circumstances continue the relay. Kaysen, a six-foot-two, laconic but determined Norwegian, initially listened. He told Olsen that he would wait for a few hours to see if the storm subsided. In fact, conditions only worsened. By 10 o'clock, Kaysen's reasoning was that things were not going to get any better, and if he waited, the drifts would become even more impassable. Despite Olsen's warning, he hooked up his team of 13 dogs with Balto and Fox in the lead. On his feet and legs and hips, Kaysen wore two layers of waterproof sealskin garments, two thick reindeer parkers with a fur hood and hat drawn tightly around his head and face protected him from from 40 below zero temperatures and a 70-mile-an-hour wind. Standing tall, a strong, experienced musher, the sled driver was as qualified and confident as anyone under normal circumstances. But the 53 miles to Nome would be traversed under conditions that were anything but normal. Immediately, Kaysen ran into severe challenges. Normally, the sled team merely plowed through any drifts that accumulated on the trail, but five miles in, Chest-deep snow forced Kaysen to stop, turn his sled around, circumvent the obstacle, and regain the path. Ten miles in, he hit the frozen Topcoke River, the dogs having to run through unfrozen pools of water that spilled through cracks in the ice. Kaysen stopped, drying off his team's legs, the water potentially harmful if it froze on a dog's limbs. This river was only a preamble to the ridges and hills approaching Topcoke Mountain. Kaysen could already feel that his face was frostbitten, and the 600-foot climb to the peak of the hill was a passage usually only attempted in daylight. Kaysen paused for a minute to let himself and his dogs regain their breath and then pushed on. With such deep snow, Kaysen had to push as hard as he could to help the dogs along the path. After getting to the top, he was now running along Norton Sound with no barrier from the gale-force winds that were coming from his right northeastern direction. In the darkness and blizzard conditions, he could hear little and see even less. He would have to depend on Balto to find the way, Kaysen unable to even guess where he was on the trail. Eventually, he would recognize a land formation known as the Bonanza Slough, but that meant he had missed the roadhouse and rest stop at Solomon. Kaysen was actually supposed to hand off the Sierra at Port Safety only 10 miles away. He decided that by the time he headed backwards and found the Solomon Roadhouse, he would already be halfway to the next stop, and turning around the team was difficult under any weather conditions, never mind a gale-force blizzard. For the entire ride, Kaysen had had his hands full, merely keeping the wind from tipping over the sled. But finally, a particularly brutal gust succeeded in flipping the sled and Kaysen sideways into a deep drift. He dug himself out righted the sled, and untangled the harness lines of the dogs. He also checked to make sure the serum package was securely in the sled basket, but his stoic attitude turned to panic when he determined that the container was gone. It took several minutes of fumbling in the snow in his bare hands before he found the package, and with freezing limbs, tied it back securely. Now, however, as he began to move toward port safety, he caught a break. Gradually turning in a southwesterly direction, Kaysen had the wind at his back. 
That not only was less debilitating, but also helped the dogs move faster. By 3 o'clock in the morning, he arrived at the roadhouse in Port Safety, but when he got there, it was dark. Ed Roan, after hearing that the relay was suspended and presuming that Kaysen had also gotten the same notification, went to sleep. He also must have presumed that no one would be foolhardy enough to defy such appalling conditions. But somebody was that brave or crazy, whatever the case might be. And Gunnar Kaysen didn't wait very long before deciding to complete the last 20 miles to Nome. By the time he got Ed Roan out of bed, the dogs harnessed and the new sled driver ready to go, Kaysen figured he would be well down the trail. The wind was diminishing. The trail was relatively flat and clearly marked, and the last 20 miles would be the easiest of the trip. Still, it was after 5 in the morning, Monday, February 2nd, when Kaysen could make out the crucifix on top of Nome's tallest church, St. Joseph's. He turned onto Front Street and pulled up in front of the town's largest bank and brought the sled to a halt. The few witnesses to the scene observed Kaysen stumble towards Balto, embrace the animal, and say gently, Damn fine dog. Word rapidly spread of Kaysen's arrival, and Dr. Welsh was summoned to retrieve and examine the package. Luckily, rubber containers were used as opposed to glass that could easily crack if the package was dropped or when the serum contracted and expanded in the extreme temperatures. Welsh immediately began to administer injections of antitoxin, and by early afternoon, 10% of the material was gone. By the following day, even the most stricken patients were showing marked improvement. There was another brief skirmish between Governor Bone and the other contingent as to how the next one million units were to be delivered, but at least half of the shipment was on its way by dog sled on February 7th. Bone relented enough to hold 500,000 units in reserve in the event that anyone was able to get a viable airplane into the air. No one could. The second shipment arrived in Nome on February 15th. By the 21st, the quarantine was lifted. The number of fatalities still a matter of dispute, but officially no more than seven people dead. Many others saved by the timely administration of the vaccine. The serum relay remained a huge story across the United States, with local journalists getting hired by national wire services to provide eyewitness accounts. Only hours after his actual arrival, Gunnar Kaysen reenacted his return down the main streets of Nome for photographers and motion picture cameras. Newspaper articles focused on Kaysen as he was the only sled-driving participant present, and because journalists wanted to focus on one dog, Balto was anointed as the main canine hero of the serum run. His co-lead dog, Fox, was ignored, and there was no mention of Sapala, Togo, or, at first, any of the other drivers involved. The story and the photographs and film of Kaysen and Balto, quickly transported to Seattle, caused a media sensation. Within days, Kaysen got an offer from a Hollywood film producer to appear in a movie with his dog team. Kaysen and Balto were soon standing on the steps of Los Angeles' City Hall with the mayor and Mary Pickford. Although Leonard Sapala was annoyed by the attention Kaysen was getting, he did give his employee permission to take the dogs, who he considered inferior anyway, and make the film. In conjunction with the movie deal, a vaudeville-style tour was developed, and suddenly Gunnar Kaysen was a full-blown American celebrity. 
An indication of the level of Balto's profile came when it was announced by the city of New York that a statue to honor all of the participants in the serum drive would be placed in Central Park, a statue of Balto deposited on top of this memorial base. On December 15, 1925, both Balto and Kaysen were present when the statue was dedicated, a monument that remains very popular even today. Kaysen and his wife soon grew tired of the vaudeville life and the frequent squabbles with Hollywood producers and the tour operator over money. As their celebrity faded, they decided to head back home to Alaska, at this point the tour operator having somehow gained ownership of the dog team and sled. How this process unfolded remains unclear, but the animals were transported back to Los Angeles, where a proprietor of a typical sideshow of oddities and amusements named Sam Houston acquired the dogs. For months, they were on display in a small enclosure in dreadful conditions, neglected by their new owner. It was not until a visiting Cleveland businessman, George Kimball, saw the dogs and wanted to rescue them from their plight. Houston agreed to sell the team for $2,000, but gave Kimball only two weeks to raise the money. Kimball returned home and through newspaper publicity, and after an overwhelming public response, Balto and his team were extricated and brought to Cleveland and their permanent home, a popular attraction at the city zoo. There, Balto and the rest of the team lived in relative tranquility until the famous lead dog, blind and arthritic, was euthanized on March 14, 1933, aged 14. His body was preserved, and today it is on display at the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. When Gunnar Kaysen returned to Nome, it was to a great deal of controversy and even animosity. In a small town like Nome, there was bound to be jealousy over the attention that Kaysen received many maintaining that he deliberately bypassed the roadhouses and Ed Roan so he could personally deliver the serum and claim glory as the last sled driver. Others called such grudges nonsense. Kaysen wasn't so much concerned with celebrity as he was making split-second decisions, attempting to merely survive what all later agreed was some of the worst Alaskan weather conditions in 20 years. Personally, Kaysen responded to the situation by going back to work and refusing to publicly discuss the incident, especially with media who always wanted his perspective on the local squabble. In 1952, the taciturn Kaysen retired from the mines and moved with his wife to Everett, Washington, where he passed away from cancer in 1960. Kaysen had family in Washington state, but even to them, he said very little about his role in the serum run. On one rare occasion, his only comment to a relative was, if it wasn't for Balto, I wouldn't be alive today. In the days during his return to Nome, after the serum run concluded, Leonard Sapala had much more urgent concerns than trying to market himself to Hollywood and the world press. Out on the trail, on the way back to Nome, Togo and another dog picked up the scent of reindeer in the vicinity and got out of their harnesses. They disappeared into the wilderness, and it was several days before they casually trotted into Sapala's kennel. Distracted by his dog's absence, at first Sapala was gracious about the attention sent Kaysen's way, but over time he became indignant, especially because he felt that Togo had run much further than Balto.
and was not getting his due, a serious matter among Alaskans, especially among competitive dog racers. Sapala was able to arrange his own nationwide tour in which he brought 42 dogs from Seattle to California and across the country all the way to the Northeast. Tex Rickard, the legendary owner of Madison Square Garden and former Nome resident, brought Sapala and his sled team onto the ice in between periods of a hockey game with an audience of 20,000 cheering fans. From there, Sapala went to Poland Spring, Maine to participate in a sled racing competition in which he easily outclassed the local dogs. The race was sponsored by the Poland Spring Resort, owned by the Ricker family. Elizabeth Ricker became so enamored with Siberian Huskies that she offered to buy Sapala's dogs and hire him as the manager of a kennel that bred and sold the increasingly popular canines. The venture was a success, and by 1930, the American Kennel Club recognized the Siberian Husky as a specific pedigree. Sapala spent his time between Maine and Alaska, but always left Togo behind in the Ricker household when he returned home. The serum run was Togo's last long-distance endeavor, and even then, at age 12, he was considered old for a sled dog. By age 16, the dog was partially blind and could only move with great difficulty. On December 9, 1929, the decision was made to euthanize Togo at his kennel in Maine. He was also preserved, and after a lengthy stay in Yale's Peabody Museum and the Shelburne Museum in Shelburne, Vermont, he was returned to the Iditarod Museum in Wasilla, Alaska, where he can be seen today. Incidentally, while the Iditarod ends in Nome and was even initially dedicated to the mushers of the Serum Run, it does not follow the same path from Nanana. Leonard Sapala also left Alaska and retired to Seattle in 1946 with his longtime wife, Constance. They both passed away in their 80s within a few years of each other and are buried in the town's cemetery in Nome. Unlike Kaysen, Sapala never shied away from a journalist, and in his final years he reminisced, When I come to the end of the trail, I feel that along with my many friends, Togo will be waiting, and everything will be all right. Thank you for listening to part two of this podcast about Leonard Sapala. Much of the information for this podcast came from the book, The Cruelest Miles by Gay Salisbury, and the Sports Illustrated magazine article, And You Thought We Have a Vaccine Issue by John Wertheim, January 13th, 2021. There are also additional photographs, bibliographical and musical information at someveryfamouspeople.com. If you have enjoyed this presentation, please like us at our Facebook page, Some Very Famous People, and follow us on Twitter at Philip D. Gibbons. Also rate us on iTunes, and if you have the time, leave a brief review. A link is provided at the website. <music>